Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello, and welcome to Garden Success. Guess what? I'm not by recording today. I'm actually back live, back in the saddle again. It's good to be back. Uh, I, uh, boy, we have got a bazillion emails to catch up on after being away for a good while. Uh, and uh, I just want to mention something up front that uh, I'm not going to be able to type answers to all the emails that come in. But what I will do is I will answer them on the air. So please, if you email, just thanks for sending pictures. Pictures are very helpful. Uh, and if you can attach them rather than embed them, it's even better because that way I can open them and zoom in a little bit better and faster uh, while I'm trying to also do the radio show. If uh, if you want to attach photos that show things that uh, you want identified or diagnosed, please do so and make sure they're in sharp focus before you send them. Sometimes our cameras think we're wanting a picture of something out in the distance that they're focusing on rather than the thing up close that you're trying to show me a picture of. So my diagnosis and IDs are only as good as the, the photos are, and as you would, of course, know. Uh, and so please make sure that they're in good, good, sharp focus. We'll get to a bunch of those uh, later. In the meantime, uh, we're glad to have you listening to Garden Success. Our phone number, if you would like to give us a call, is 979-845-5689. Eight nine nine seven nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, or by email garden success at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu. So where have I been? Well, first of all, uh, I retired. I retired from AgriLife Extension after thirty five years of being a county AgriLife Extension agent in a number of counties around the state. And in the process of that, I had to kind of take a month off before I could come back and be on the air again. And so, hence, uh, some recorded shows. I hope you enjoyed them. I tell you, I enjoy listening to the past recorded shows because those conversations with experts are just really good. They're really interesting. And, and I hope you enjoyed that as well. So, But we're back live now taking your calls. We're going to start by going out to the phones and talking to Roger. Well, hello, Roger. Welcome to Garden Success. Hello, Skip. Hi. I've got a couple of I've got a couple of questions about oak trees. I planted about, oh, I don't know, 30 oak trees on a place that I moved to, and uh, they're all prospering. I've got, they're, at this point, they're five, six years old. They've got uh, four to six-inch calipers and probably anywhere from you know, six to eight, ten feet um, canopies. I've got one tree that's not doing particularly well, and I'm looking at it, and it's got kind of a whiskery-looking, I call it a fungus, uh, up in the top on some of the leaves, limbs that look like maybe they're they're dead, and I didn't know if that was something that's opportunistic that came because the tree's not doing well, or if that's causing the tree to not do well. Yeah, good question. Good question. So what it is is it's the a result of the tree not doing well. Uh, that what you're seeing is actually called a lichen. It's a most usually those are a combination between an algae and I believe it's an algae and a fungus or something like that growing uh, on the tree. Uh, but it's not a disease of the tree. You'll see lichens on dead fence posts. You'll see them growing on rocks, uh, the whiskery kind, right. uh, pretty much on trees, tree bark. But it's, it's just living, uh, it's along for the ride on the dead outer bark of that tree. 
so uh, what it tells us though is that tree has been struggling it's not been putting on new growth the canopy is thinning out a little bit and and the environment of course is, is humid which it, we don't change humidity around here it is what it is but uh, those kinds of things they come in many forms some are whiskery some are like flat pieces of paper with frilly edges they typically are right. kind of a, a greenish sometimes grayish sometimes uh, kind of a, a, exactly. a silver color or a gray gray color uh, and again many forms some of them have orange in them and things it, they're very interesting but uh, what, what do you do? Well, I think what you do is figure out why the tree isn't healthy and get it going. Uh, and so I would, I would look around the base of the tree first. Um, since this one is kind of standing out as doing more poorly than the others, you can either get a blast of strong water uh, or you can get a little hand trowel or something and kind of excavate around the base of it and see if there's a root that has encircled the tree and has now embedded itself in the trunk. Sometimes trees are grown in small containers. Let's say it was grown initially in a one-gallon pot, and then it was bumped up to larger and larger pots. But at the one-gallon stage, you had a little spaghetti-sized root going around the circle of that pot, which roots do. As it gets bigger, the root gets bigger, the trunk gets bigger, and eventually, down the line, about the size of the tree you described, the two have come together, and now we have a, a root that's strangling the tree, essentially. Usually by the time you see the problem, it's a little late to do the kind of surgery to get it out of there because it's so embedded, but you can attempt to do that and sort of set that trunk free to grow again. Uh, if you, you look carefully, you may also find something else. Uh, a little earlier than the stage you're in, it could be a nursery tag. It could be twine that's wrapped around it. or the, I've just seen all kinds of things over the years, but but basically let's first look for that. Secondly, something is wrong in that spot. Uh, I don't know, sometimes we dig a hole in a clay soil, the sides become, sides become glazed and the roots don't tend to venture out. And so they stay somewhat circulating or in a circle and just not really venturing into the soil. And that tree doesn't establish well. Tell me again how long ago that one was planted. Uh, I planted that one about three to four years ago, but I'm in a very sandy soil that's okay. deep sand. Okay, so that's not the problem. What could be the problem is, is you know, lack of water. Uh, last summer was horrible. Um, you know, the, the demands well, on those trees were incredible, and even when you try to water, it's difficult to catch up uh, because a, a good tree has a root zone that draws on a huge bank account of soil, and we can only water a little area. And so it's it's kind of like if you were um, breathing through a little tiny straw, air would be coming through, but you wouldn't get enough air, you know, to supply you. And yeah. uh, that the same would be true of watering a small part of a big tree's root system. Yes, it's moist there. You can keep it moist there, but it's hard for the tree to take up enough through that small yeah, well, zone have, of roots. I have irrigation to the each tree, and I kept them watered all every time they get a little dry, mm -hmm. water them, mm -hmm. uh, and everything else is prospering. Okay, but, uh, I'll I'll check that. Uh, yeah, well, that root thing out. Yeah, check the base. The chances of that being it are are less than fifty percent for sure. But that is often a cause when we see things happening at the stages. Has that tree always done poorly, or was it doing better initially? No, it was it was about average with with the rest of them. Okay. Uh, eliminating, 
eliminating damage from herbicides that were applied around it or damage from physical injury, trenching, so on, those kinds of things, which I'm, you didn't include that, so I'm assuming that isn't on the table. Uh, that kind of leaves us with the, the moisture of this past summer. And uh, I would say as we go into the summertime, the wider of an area of, of weed and grass-free soil that you can give the tree, the better. So like if you were to take that tree and find a way to spray or whatever and kill all the grass and weeds around it, is this in your yard or is this more of a kind of an open Yeah, I, I keep it. Right now I've got probably a four or five foot band of uh, pine bark Okay. Uh, mulch around it, uh, or pine bark nuggets rather, yeah. that I keep weed free around each of the trees. Okay. Now, f do you mean uh, two foot out from the tree in all directions, or are you saying four foot out? In all yes. Yes. Yeah. Two to three feet out. Yeah. And if you if you ask the tree, it would say, as far as my branch spread reaches, that's the minimum <laughs> of what I want, and uh, right. that aesthetically is not always acceptable in our landscapes, but. If you can broaden that out, it makes a huge difference. And you can, you know, you can put compost and materials down that, that create that forest floor type environment and whatnot. Uh, that would be a help if you can do that. Uh, when you water a good deep soaking, an inch or in a sand, I would say an inch ought to be enough because it's going to move on down in the soil uh, once a week. Uh, that would be good when we hit the heat of summer. So that, that's about all in your power. You could fertilize it. Uh, I would probably just grab a lawn fertilizer and look at the trunk diameter, oh, about waist high, and just say, give it a cup or two of lawn fertilizer per inch of trunk diameter. So as an example, I know okay. your tree's bigger than this, but let's say it was the size of a Coca-Cola can. That's about three inches. So you would give it three to six cups. And so if it was six inches, six to 12 okay. cups and so on. Uh, and, and not just all right, at the base, I, all underneath the branches. Okay. What I did was I took a, a bar, about an inch and a quarter bar, and drove down about six to eight inches. And I put a half a cup in each of those four places around the trees. So you're saying that's not enough fertilizer. It, it's the same thing I was saying about watering. Um, the um, there's only a certain amount of roots in there to take up nutrients, and it would be better to, to, to fertilize a wider area and then water it in well. Uh, that's how nature gets okay. fertilizer on the ground, uh, is it drops it on the surface. It drops nutrients on the surface. And so I would, uh, I, I would broaden that area. Uh, the holes are okay, but just remember, most of the roots are in the top foot of soil, so you want to be real careful you don't put the fertilizer right. too deep. And, and our, right. uh, it's, if it's a synthetic-based fertilizer, it's just, it's going to release pretty quick, and those nutrients are going to wash down with the exception of phosphorus, which is not the tree's problem lack of being a lack of phosphorus. We're mainly after the, getting the nitrogen down there, um, which is the first number on the bag. Okay, so uh, before I enter to a rain, if I were to hand scatter fertilizer, would be the optimal way to do it? Uh, uh you mean hand apply fertilizer Under the around canopy. the canopy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Pardon? Yes. Take that total amount based on the trunk diameter and spread it as far as the branches go uh, in all directions. And if it's a lopsided tree, you know, if it went three feet on one side and 10 feet on the other, just do a big 10 foot circle around it. But uh, basically, okay. j just water it in right away. And then, as, big, as much as you can, go ahead and mulch that area. Okay. okay. 
And again, uh, for a three inch, you do how much per? Well, I, um, inch yeah. Uh, what I like, what I like to tell people, it's easy to remember. Is take your thumb. That's about an inch wide. And how many thumb widths across? Give it a cup or two for every one. Okay, that, fine. that's a simple. Well, it's actually a rule of thumb. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Skip. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. I appreciate that call. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, I want to uh, go to the emails. I've got a, an email from uh, James. Uh, James has uh, sent me some photos of a what people call the corn plant. It's a type of Dracaena. Uh, it's got the big, looks like a, looks like a vegetable corn plant uh, and has big stalks on it. You, a lot of people have those in their house. And, and some of the leaves at the bottom are turning yellow, brown tips and things. And the question is, is what's going on? As I look at it, and this is for any of you with house plants, this is something worth noting. Uh, the, there is a, a, a ratio between the size of the pot and the size of the plant that we'd like to sort of maintain. This particular plant is in a little bit small of a pot. Not too much. That's not the main problem that you have, but it it's getting close to where I think you probably need to go ahead and move it up to a larger container. Uh, I've tried to think of ways to describe how to know when to move a plant. Uh, one that I've used before for standard types of plants, uh, more of a bushy kind of plant would be when it's about um, the container is about one-third the size of the width of the plant. Uh, of course, with this corn plant, it gets really tall, so measuring width is not really measuring the full extent of the foliage and stuff on the plant. Uh, but in general, about a third. In this one, there's a lot of leaves uh, for that size pot. And so what happens is the nutrients are more limited because the only place that plant can get nutrients are from the soil and, and the only place it can get water is from the soil. So it gets dry really fast. I would check the drainage on it, make sure that it does drain well. Uh, one thing you could do when you think the soil had been watered and you think it may be time to water it uh, is sharpen a pencil, sharp, so it doesn't have like the oil of your fingers on the cut end toward out toward the lead, between the paint and the lead, if you will, uh, and put that pencil down about two inches and then pull it out and look at it. Is, is that wood moistened? from moist soil, or is there little pieces of soil sticking to it? Kind of like pe uh, when people bake a cake, they use a toothpick sometimes to do that. Uh, and then go a little deeper, go about three or four inches, and keep checking it. And uh, it, you know, if you get down to about two inches on a pot, and you're not seeing soil moisture sticking to it, you probably need to go ahead and give it a little bit more water again. You can go a little deeper than that and check it, but anyway, I, I would do that. It, the symptoms you're showing could be soggy wet soil conditions and they could be dry soil conditions and it, and it also most often is a fluctuation between the two. The plant overall looks good. The little small side trunk that is showing the problems may have a root rot going on and it may be lost. I don't know. I can't see it fully well but I it looks to me like that one may have an issue in which case you're probably going to need to just cut it off uh, if it doesn't improve pretty quick. For those tips that are brown, uh, get some scissors. And, uh, you know, those uh, corn plant or dracaena leaves come to a point and just take scissors and go back behind the brown and cut a new point on the leaf. Does that make sense? Uh, some people cut them straight across. I think that looks distracting. If you cut them to a little bit of a V, 
you know, about in the shape of a capital V, uh, then you will end up with a plant that looks kind of natural when you've gotten through and you don't have all those brown tips. The brown tips are another sign of a root issue. Probably probably a temporary drought uh, did that, but that James is, is my best shot on, on that particular plant and what you're seeing going on. Our phone number, if you'd like to give us a call, is 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689. You're listening to Garden Success, and we're here to answer your gardening questions. So if you've got a question, now be a great time uh, to that. We're going to be here every Thursday from 12 to 1. Uh, and you can also listen to past shows. Uh, you can go to the website, the K-A-M-U-F-M website, Find Garden Success, and the past shows are posted there. You can also uh, listen by the podcast. Uh, these shows are made into a podcast that is available through your various podcast uh, suppliers. So if you miss something and want to go back, uh, that's one way uh, that you can do that. We'll go back to the... Uh, emails again and had one uh, from Garrett. Uh, Garrett has some tomatoes with really skinny malformed leaves. Uh, you know you think about what a little tomato seedling, these are seedlings by the way, little four inch pots it looks like. Uh, and you know some of them, they, they have a normal look to the leaves, a green normal look uh, and they're under a grow light and then looking at the growth it looks like they're getting adequate light uh, but the, the twisted, strange look to the leaves, is, that's very strange. Uh, and I don't know exactly what's causing it. It probably is a nutrient deficiency, probably a micronutrient, but I can't really tell which one. Uh, you might try getting a good nutrient solution, one of those you mix up in water and, and, and water the plants with it and see if that helps bring it out of it. There are also viruses that can cause that and herbicide injury that can cause that, and both of those are very unlikely uh, underneath, uh, you know, inside the house, underneath lights. So we typically don't see those. So I, I would tend to eliminate those two. Um, yeah, I would, I would separate those out, give them a little bit of a, I say separate them out, I mean just fertilize them differently than the others. It looks like all of them probably could use a little bit uh, of, uh, extra nutrient. Also, if they stay too soggy wet, uh, that can damage roots. And when you lose roots, you lose the ability to take up nutrients. And so uh, that is what we might be looking at. But I wouldn't worry about adding a nutrient to them. I would just watch the soil moisture, keep it as even as you can, and then give them a little dose of an extra uh, solution. Now, if these were so maybe saved seed from some plant, then we could be looking at something that was transferred into the seed, like a virus perhaps or something that uh, might be there. And in that case, those plants you would want to get rid of. I know you don't want to hear that uh, and rogue those out, but I wouldn't jump to that conclusion just yet, Garrett. We're going to go back to the phones. Again, our phone number, 979-845-5689. And we're going to talk to John. Hello, John. Good morning. Hey, how, how are you? This morning. I'm good. Long time uh, no talk. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Mary's got that big Don Juan, actually several big Don Juans, and they have fierce thorns on them. And she wanted me to ask you, if she, if she just snips off the ends of those thorns where she's working, does that hurt the plant or not? Not at all. No, in fact, I've, I've even... 
uh, I don't know if you ever know this on a on a cut rose. I know you buy Mary uh, dozens of red roses, cut flowers all the time. But uh, uh, so oh, yeah. yeah, so you, I've, when I get those, sometimes the, often the the grower will cut the thorns off, but you can grab a thorn and just bend it to the side, and it snaps right off where it attaches. It's kind of unique, and you do that with a glove huh. hand, but you don't have to go through the process of snipping. You can just snap them off uh, or snip if you want, but it will not hurt it at all. Okay, well, she, there, it's not just the Don one. There's several others. She has, yeah. I don't know, she always picks them with big thorns. I don't know why. But well, some, anyway, there's some great roses have a lot of thorns, but, yeah, that, you, that way you won't be given blood. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, John, thanks for the call. Good talk to you again. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Hey, I want to tell you about a couple of things going on. In fact, there are several things going on out there. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society has their Birding 101 uh, activities real, real, really frequently uh, out at Lick Creek Park. On Saturday, March 2nd, they're going to have another one. It starts at 8.30 in the morning at Lick Creek Park. For those of you new to the Bryan College Station area, if you go south in College Station, Rock Prairie crosses over Highway 6, and you would just take Rock Prairie out to the east, and eventually you'll come to Lick Creek Park on the right-hand side. Uh, and this is at 8.30 in the morning on Saturday, March 2nd. And what you do is you show up there. If you've got binoculars, bring them. If not, they generally have some loners. And you will learn a lot from Audubon Society members about birds. You take a little word, a bird walk uh, through the trails out at Lick Creek and uh, learn about the songs, learn to see them, uh, to recognize them, to hear the songs. And it's just, a, it's just an overall pleasant experience uh, to get out and enjoy that. And so if you're interested at all, uh, and I know with kids that would probably be a... A really interesting thing. Kids a little bit older age, you know, where they can settle in and focus on one thing. Uh, although some of us kids of all ages have trouble focusing on one thing for very long. <laughs> but anyway, uh, for olders, that would be something that I think they would find interesting. Uh, the Pioneer Unit of the Herb Society of America is going to have uh, their annual uh, herb sale. Herb Actually, it's an herb and a gift uh, plant uh, sale. And the unit is called the it's called the pioneer herb unit of the herb society of america and if you're interested in it this sale is going to be on march 15th and 16th that's a friday and saturday and the 15th and 16th of friday and saturday uh, from 8 a.m to 5 on friday 8 a.m to 3 on saturday and they have hundreds of varieties of herbs for this region i mean if you're looking for something beyond just the same old same old well, this will be a place. Uh, they're going to have a wide, wide, wide variety of herbs. They're in Round Top, Texas on um, Jaster, J-A-S-T-E-R Road. That's where the Round Top Festival Institute is. That's the site where this will take place. You can also go, I, I don't, rather than throwing out all kinds of uh, phone numbers and everything else, address and stuff, festivalhill.org. Just go there, festivalhill.org. O-R-G, and you can find out more about it. Uh, and so they're going to, I've been to those, it's been a while, I need to go back to one. Uh, but th they are a great, great way to, if you're interested in herbs, to find types that just aren't that common, as well as ones that are. 
Then on Saturday, March 23rd, our Brazos County Master Gardeners are having their spring plant sale. And this is always a big deal and a very popular deal. Uh, it will be on Saturday, March 23rd, beginning at 8 a.m. And it'll go till 1 p.m. So it's extended hours at the Brazos County Extension Office, which is right next to the county tax office. Uh, the, the street is called County Park Court. Uh, but it's right next to the Brazos County Tax Office, the extension office is, and they just sort of turn the parking lot into a big plant sale, and boy, they have a lot of things. They have native plants and perennials. They'll have herbs as well, a really good selection. Uh, vegetables and bulbs, all suited for Brazos County growing conditions. Now, I would recommend you bring your own wagon and load up. They will have some wagons, uh, but uh, the last time I looked uh, on uh, at the beginning of, of one of these sales, they were lined up all the way to really to the end of the block uh, and because when it was time to start because people know you want to get there early you want to get good selection but don't if you don't get there right away still come because there is a lot of plants that will be available and there'll be plenty for everybody uh, but uh, for the those of you who must have just a certain kind of plant uh, early is recommended spring plant sale of, of the Brazos County Master Gardener Saturday March 23rd 8 a.m., beginning at 8 a.m., but remember, I'd line up a little before that if you are looking for the widest of selection options. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, uh, or if you would like to email me, the email is gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And I want to remind you that I'm just not able to type out email responses uh, and so if you email me include photos if photos are part of describing or showing the problem make sure they're in sharp focus and then listen to garden success or listen to a past show on the podcast or on the website and that way you can hear your answers if for some reason I, I need to converse with you on an answer I'll, I'll I will respond on an email but in general uh, most of those, I'm just, I'm not going to try to type it out. I, I, I just am not able to, to do that. I had a question come in from Linda on what warm weather vegetable transplants are safe to put in the ground now. Well, anything that's a warm weather transplant, Linda, is uh, susceptible to frost and freezes. And so the question is, are we going to have another one? Uh, if you look carefully at the um, chart that shows what vegetables you plant through the year, and this is available on the Master Gardener website here with of AgriLife Extension, Tra uh, Brazos County Master Gardeners. Uh, it says that our last average frost date is February 26th. Now, it depends on which years you include in terms of coming up with an average, but that uh, fairly recently was uh, from a couple of decades past uh, data looking at the average. So. Yeah, it may move a day or two here and there as time goes on. But anyway, February 26th. So if that's truly the av last average frost date, then we're pretty much there this coming weekend. Uh, and so uh, if you want to gamble a little bit, go for it and do that. If you want to be a little extra safe or careful or cautious or conservative about planting, then you can wait. I tend to plant a little early, and I know that frosts are going to come. If you wait until a week after the last average frost date, you could still have a frost. It's average. It's not, there's no guarantees. And just be ready to cover them up. So I think the coast is almost clear if we're going to look at the 50-50 chances uh, based on past data. Uh, so uh, that would mean 
your tomatoes could go out. You know, peppers are not really, none of these plants are happy with cool weather, uh, but uh, peppers, I might hold off just a little on those just to give them a little bit more time for things to warm up just a little bit more. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a eggplant. I probably wait a little bit longer too to put those out. Uh, but I know tomatoes are the queen of the garden and everybody wants to get their tomatoes out there. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, by the way, if you don't have that chart, go download it. It's free. It's a, it's a January through December across the top and uh, artichokes through watermelons on the column on the left and then it looks like a big old checkerboard of green squares and white squares and it tells you exactly when uh, the best times to plant here are at Brazos MG uh, website. So I'm going to go now back to the phones and we're going to talk to Tim. Hello Tim. Hey Skip. What's up? Um, I've got a uh, I've got a, a a young bur oak that uh, my wife and I planted uh, a year ago before 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 last winter and uh, we were just taking the the um, tree wrap off it <clears throat> last week and we noticed uh, some tiny bunch of tiny holes yes. on one of the branches or a couple of the branches yes. I actually sent you a photo I got it mm -hmm. and we were okay what do you what do you think well um, so let's take those two items uh, one at a time. The the holes mm -hmm. are caused by a twig gall wasp. It's a tiny little wasp. Look at the size of the holes. That's the wasp coming mm -hmm. out of the branch. Uh, it lays eggs in the branch. These larvae chew around mm -hmm. in the branch. The branch grows in response to that internal wounding, so those branches are not normally shaped, you know, uh, as a result of that. Uh, and then at some point, the wasp goes through its its life cycle and comes out as an adult where it's chewed the hole out and comes out of those holes. So it's a tiny wasp. There's not a practical way to control them. Now, if you were to sit out there and spray certain kinds of persistent insecticides, because you, you, you can't spray something that lasts a day. you got to spray something that's, that's going to be around a while. Mm -hmm. And you do it over and over and over again. Well, yeah, you could prevent it. But it's just not practical to go about it that way. Uh, what we generally say on those, they do have natural enemies that uh, that attack them. And uh, so those generally get the best of those pests and keep them under control. You don't see big trees that are just dying because of these wasps all over them. Uh, what I would recommend is focus on, on watering the tree in the drought times to make sure it doesn't stress and fertilizing it to encourage more growth. Uh, and you basically outgrow the problem. So that, mm, that would okay. be the best approach with second best being get out there and spray a lot uh, with really good coverage mm. so all surfaces or have a uh, insecticide sitting there for a long period of time. Uh, but that okay. kind of answer what you're thinking on, but, the, on the holes? Yeah, yes. Anyway, it's not something to be to be terribly concerned about but we should just but, but we should keep right. an eye on it yeah and i've seen stress okay. trees in general stress plants mm -hmm. often have more problems and i think it's probably some signals go out that attract some problems but um the the uh i've seen trees that are very young and it's like every branch is messed up mm -hmm. and the wasp yeah. isn't killing the tree but anytime you do physical damage anytime you prevent the flow of water and nutrients through the branches which their activity does uh, you start to see problems on the tree so it's, it, it can be so bad that it, it it is a concern 
but in general, just keeping your trees healthy and growing is, is the best approach. I want to go now to the tree wrap comment because I think that's... Can, can, I, can I ask you one Yeah. Can sure. I ask you one more question about that? Should we worry about this branch? Should, I, should we get rid of the branch? Is it, uh, is it, is it infested? Uh, if it's a, or, um, well, if it has holes, it's no longer infested. The wasps have come out and they're oh, okay. flying around oh, okay. doing that again. Uh, to, they, they, that happens to, I think you said this is a bur oak, right? This yeah. tree. It happens also to live oaks a lot too. Uh, yeah, so as far as the branch, if it's not a permanent branch, not one that when that tree is a big old shade tree is going to be still on mm -hmm. the tree. It, it will have been pruned off by then. There's nothing wrong with going mm -hmm. ahead and taking it off. Uh, that mm -hmm. There's okay. no reason to need to okay. leave it. We just want to be careful not to remove too many uh, branches that will have the leaves that supply the energy for the tree. Because yeah. then you yeah, also... It's one of the larger... Okay. Yeah, it'll outgrow it's it. It's one of the larger... Okay, okay. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so the tree, right. tree wrap. Uh, a lot yeah, of trees, yeah. when they're young, have very thin bark. And um, this is true, especially of red oaks. It's true of maples. Uh, it, it's just a lot of trees when they're young. Instead of having the characteristic thick bark that you would see when that tree grows older, uh, it, it's very thin. And in the, in the wintertime, during late in the day, that's the warmest part of a winter day. The sun is in the southwest sky, and it's traveling low, being a winter uh, sun pattern. And it shines on the southwest side of the tree, primarily southwest, mm -hmm. and it warms up those tissues. And they're so thin that they heat up, and the sap starts to flow, and then you get a freeze, and that spot gets killed, whereas the rest of the tree tissues on the trunk and branches are not killed. Uh, and we call that southwest injury, and tree wraps really help yeah. with that. And I would say during the first three years of a tree's life, especially when you plant one and it's a young, thin, doesn't look like bark, it just looks smooth, uh, I, would, I would do tree wraps on them at that time for that reason, and then it can come off. Okay, and would this be about the time of year to take it off? Uh, no, I'd, let's get past any for sure dangers of freezes and stuff. Uh, to take it off oh, from there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there can even be some sun scald that occurs, you know, in the summer times and stuff. It's not just a freeze related thing. So mm -hmm. uh, I would I wouldn't take it off. I would leave it on if you if you have to loosen it and rewrap it or something or whatever. L leave it on throughout the year. Yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. You sure can. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, it's just a tree okay. wrap. All right. Okay. All right. Well thanks so much for your help. All right. Thanks Tim. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that call. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 979-845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu edu. gardensuccess at tamu edu. Uh, and so I had a question come in from Karen about a zoysia grass lawn. Uh, you don't see a lot of zoysia lawns uh, there. It's a great grass. Every, every grass species has its pros and cons. In fact, I would say every plant has its pros and cons. Uh, in fact, let's just keep going. Every person has their pros and cons, right? Think of the people around you. Uh, and so zoysia is, a, is an excellent grass. It, has, it does have some really good characteristics. Um, so with this zoysia, the question 
they were they're looking for an organic uh, fertilizer uh, that could be used or an organic product maybe that would help uh, with weeds and now is is the time if you're putting a herbicide down to prevent weeds we call that a pre-emergent now's the time to get that down in fact uh, soon very soon in the next week or two would be ideal uh, maybe depending on the year we have weeds can sprout a little earlier there's not a good organic pre-emergent weed control product your number one way to prevent weeds from sprouting from seeds is to build a dense heavy lawn over time and boy zoysia can create a very dense lawn that chokes out weed seeds as long as you maintain density there is a product called a corn gluten meal that has been touted as a pre-emergent herbicide and it, it's just a part of the corn kernel corn gluten meal can cause weed seeds as they germinate to not be able to get good root growth just to send that root down in the ground so that the weed seed becomes a resilient little weed plant and uh, when that happens and we get a little dryness then that weed dies any seed germinating that dries out is going to be killed by that and so the problem is is that we have rainfall and some people keep irrigating and things and you don't go through the dry period for corn gluten meal to work you would need to put it down at the label rate which is 20 pounds per thousand square feet you could go a little higher that's fine but 20 pounds per thousand square feet should be adequate you need to water it in with just a little water I'm talking about like a third of an inch maybe less uh, you want to move it to the soil surface where it's activated there to prevent the weed seeds that are coming up there from getting established now if it stays too wet the weeds will hang on survive and then establish anyway not all weeds are controlled by corn gluten meal and not all people do the process right and nature sometimes rains when you don't want it to and especially the not all weeds are controlled part uh, the variation I've seen in research goes from zero to maybe 80 90 percent uh, control on certain weed seeds so I don't recommend it in general if somebody wants to do it organically and that's the only option go for it but know this that it's a 10 percent nitrogen in that corn gluten meal so we recommend a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet for fertilizing when you put out corn gluten meal at 20 pounds per thousand square feet as a pre-emergent you've already applied two pounds of nitrogen now it's going to release over time it's gradual you're not going to get all 100 percent of it but I guess what I'm saying is if you do the corn gluten meal then don't also fertilize you don't need it you fertilize later but not not right right at that time uh, so that's why I don't recommend it uh, but there's your options if you want to use a synthetic product those do work very well uh, for the pre-emergence but I understand uh, you're wanting to do this organically uh, zoysia does it need a green up application fertilizer and then later a slow release you can do that but uh, I would say especially reading your email and your goals and things I would just wait and when you've mowed it twice mowing weeds doesn't count but when you've mowed the zoysia twice then put a good slow release fertilizer out there uh, and you can find those uh, online I've got a website uh, gardeningwithskip.com uh, 
gardeningwithskip.com, gardeningwithskip.com. I've got some schedules up that show different fertilizers. I've got organic and I've got synthetic, and it shows when to do this or that or the other. There ain't, those schedules are aimed a little further south than here, but uh, they, they still are pretty good for this area. You might delay just a tad bit in the spring and start a tad bit earlier in the fall uh, on those schedules. As far as the answer to your third question, which is when uh, do you apply them? And again, that's gardeningwithskip.com. Uh, because I'm a dot-com now, uh, retired. Uh, let's see, the uh, question came in from Bob, uh, looking for specifics for putting native landscape lawns in rather than dealing with Bermuda and St. Augustine and those types of things. Uh, a lot of money goes into maintaining species that don't live here, except uh, because of the in interventions of humans. Well, I tell you this: a garden is the most artificial <laughs> environment. I, you know, we think about getting out in the garden and we're being with nature, and we are, we are. But just remember, you know, in nature, you don't tell grasses to grow right here, and then at this one line in my property, I want you to stop growing, and there I'm going to bring plants in from all over the world and put up a flower bed in. And you see what I'm saying? And so, yes, they are artificial, but that's okay. That's what that's what gardens are, and we create beautiful landscapes. Now, if you want a wildscape, if you want a native scape, that's two things. One is to use native plants, and the other is to do a native type of design. Now, you can just do the traditional designs and put native plants instead of non-native plants, or you can create a scape that looks like nature which for a lot of HOAs and a lot of people's tastes is not going to be acceptable. But that's your business. And it's your yard between you and the HOA. But I would just say if you're wanting something for a lawn, you're going to need to go with a really low-growing native grass. And what you're going to end up with is a mini meadow. Uh, and so those would typically be mowed maybe three times, two or three times a year. Uh, just to cut them back down again, and we're not trying to create a lawn. Just take the word lawn out of your, your mind's eye, picturing it, uh, and think of a meadow, which is what it's going to amount to, but it's just a meadow of smaller grasses. There is a mix uh, that's sold, <clears throat> trying to think of the name of it now. Ah, can't think of the name of it. It's sold down in the Houston area a lot. Uh, that's kind of native grasses and a blend of grasses. I, I will just tell you this, based on my experience with these things through the years, as if you can give yourself some time to keep working on it and building that natural looking meadow, uh, you can have some success with it. As long as you have really good sunlight, those grasses typically do not do well in shade at all, like St. Augustine can in, in partial shade, uh, and zoysia to some degree. But <laughs> For, for a lot of people, they do it. It looks weedy. They don't like the look of it, and, uh, and so they give up on it. And so it, it's just up to you your, and your uh, preferences and also your patience. Years ago, buffalo grass came through. I remember when it was first introduced as the next best thing since sliced bread, and we tried a lot of it. Uh, I planted At that time, I was in Conroe uh, at the Extension Office in Montgomery County, and we planted some plots of it. And buffalo grass grows on the high plains of Texas in some parts of, of west central Texas, but especially on the high plains and even going north out of Texas. And it's a very drought-resilient grass. And it's drought-resilient. One of the reasons is uh, that it shuts down when there isn't water. Uh, St. Augustine lives like there's no tomorrow. I mean, like tomorrow is, don't worry about it. 
and it uses water and uses water until there's no water and then it's up a creek and it lives on top of the ground uh, and it dries out and dies. And buffalo, when it starts to get brown, it uh, starts to get dry, it turns brown and it waits and it waits and it waits and when rain comes it greens up again. Well that's not acceptable for most people for a lawn. Plus, buffalo is not that vigorous, and so every weed on earth takes it over, uh, certainly things like Bermuda grass. And any kind of broadleaf weed shows up like a neon sign in a buffalo lawn. So needless to say, it, it certainly went by the wayside, as it, it should have in this part of the state. And so I, I would say... I've seen beautiful buffalo lawns in Austin, San Antonio, in the hill country. Uh, they're they're having to stay up on the broadleaf species, uh, but it is a mini meadow, but not not over here. You'd have to switch to something else. That's a lot of words for Bob for your answer, but I would just say it can be done. Uh, but there's so many yeah buts like yeah but it has to have good sunlight yeah but you're gonna have to go through this period of time and and maintaining uh, that I think you're maybe not gonna be happy with. But that's how you go about it if you if you decide uh, that you want to do that. One advantage of being around for a few years is you see a lot of things come and go. Uh, and what do they say? There's nothing new under the sun. Um, our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689. And if you want to email me, it's gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Garden success at tamu.edu. Uh, question came in from Brian about St. Augustine lawn that was hammered last year. Uh, first of all, take all patch was in there, and then here comes tinch bugs in June and July, uh, and a uh, lot of yard to rehabilitate now. And what do you do? Well, do you stay with St. Augustine? Uh, do you aerate what's there? Do you resod? Do you fill in low places with topsoil? How do you do this? Well. I feel your pain. I've never had a chinch bug problem in my lawn, and last year chinch bugs wiped out a whole section of my lawn. Uh, and uh, because at the time I was, I'd left town for a while, and I think it was a combination of the lack of water. We had a problem with our irrigation system, and then the chinch bugs moved in. And while the cats were cat was away, the chinch bugs did play, and we lost a good section of it. At this point, uh, you, I would assess the lawn. Uh, if cost is not the, the biggest factor, then you can resod either the whole lawn or resod sections of it as needed. Uh, if you see sprigs of grass that are alive and within a foot apart in an area, with good care and if it maintains good health, that can close over by, by sometime into the summer. And so you could use the grass you have to get back if they're close enough together and if they're in good health and you continue to fertilize and water. Uh, aerating is always a good idea when grass is suffering from soil compaction. And so we do have a lot of clay soils that can compact and a deep tine core aeration is a good thing. Now I said several words there before I said, I said aerate. A uh, deep tine core aeration means uh, a tine pushes down into the ground that's hollow tine and it pulls out a plug of, of soil and it drops it on the surface. And instead of just a, a rolling aerator that pushes a hole open in the soil, typically not very deep at all, uh, and squeezes the soil around the sides of that hole, deep tine aeration is much better. 
I usually like to wait until uh, the grass has gotten growing good to do that. Uh, it's rooted in and, and it's, it's taking off growing because there is going to be some damage to the turf in the aerating process. You've got a, you a tine that's poking around in a lot of places and, and sometimes hitting runners and things. So let it get going real good. Get some energy under it before you do that. If you follow it with a compost top dressing, which can be done, uh, that's, we're talking about like a third of an inch maybe of compost over the surface of the soil, not much, maybe a fourth of an inch even, uh, just a little bit over the surface. That can also be helpful uh, for that lawn. You might want to start by mowing really low and getting all the dead debris out of the, as much as you can out of there. Uh, with, use a bagger attachment or rake up what you got. Uh, and just know that when the sunlight hits the soil, nature will plant a weed. So this spring, a lot of weeds will be germinating if they didn't already this fall. Uh, the cool season weeds, that is. The warm season weeds, grass burr and um, crabgrass and other warm season weeds, they're germinating really soon now. And that's why people put out a pre-emergent product to prevent that. But, uh, you know, I, I, you just have to assess it. And that's, that's going to be the bottom line. In many cases, a, a re-sodding is your best bet, especially if the, the areas are very large that had the damage. Uh, and then when we get into summer, recognize that chinch bugs are around. They're, they didn't just fly in from Kansas last year. They've been here. And so uh, you're going to be watching for those and stepping in early in the process to shut them down when they do. Uh, as far as take all root rot, the healthier you get your lawn, the less issues with take all you're going to have. When it's stressed, it gets take all root rot uh, because it's a ubiquitous disease. It's an opportunist. Uh, weak organisms tend to have more problems with attack by their problems that attack them. And so keeping your lawn healthy is really good. Same with us, right? If you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, you don't exercise, are you more or less likely to get sick? You know the answer to that. And uh, so when we're looking at our lawns, uh, we don't just deal with things by spraying a fungicide or insecticide or whatever out. We start, our foundation is to create a healthy lawn. And we do that by proper mowing, watering, and fertilizing. And I know that sounds boring, mow, water, fertilize. But that is the key. The most beautiful lawns in the world are mowed, watered, and fertilized properly and regularly. The nutrition is important for growing grass and building density. The watering is important. Not too much water, but adequate water. When rain doesn't supply adequate, we irrigate. And mowing, people think of as just a chore you have to do. But mowing may be the single thing that, that makes for beautiful density more than anything else. I'm not diminishing the importance of uh, fertilizing and watering or temperatures or sunlight or anything like that, but mowing regularly is important. If you let it get real tall and mow it way back, you, that's a stressful thing and you open up uh, the canopy by removing a lot of the leaves, a little grass canopy. Sunlight hits the soil, here comes weeds and issues. Well, if you mow regularly, it looks good. Think of a golf course green. Those things are mowed just with a real mower that's set down like, I don't know the exact, like an eighth or three-sixteenths of an inch or so, I don't know, really low, three-sixteenths, let's say. Uh, but they're mowed every day. <laughs> so when it grows just a tiny bit, it's mowed, a tiny bit, it's mowed. And you end up with 
a golf course green, that and a dwarf type of Bermuda. Uh, but that mowing is the most important factor. And so when it comes to your lawns, I know you don't want to hear this, but if we mow about every 10 days or two weeks, uh, you're just not going to see the density that if you could mow about every five days. Uh, and I realize life is not on a five-day schedule. It's on a seven-day schedule. So it, it is what it is. That's why one reason why St. Augustine is so popular, because it puts up with a less frequent mowing schedule. Uh, boy, I am wandering around on questions today, but hopefully that's a lot of good information. At least I'm going to believe that. Our phone number is 979 uh, 845-5689-979-845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu uh, let's see uh, Dion I see your email about uh, garden success files and uh, I, we will talk to somebody about that. I think probably we've been running a lot of pre-recorded shows and so you're not going to see a lot of new things probably on the website uh, because I have not been live but those will start up again today. Uh, so thank you for that email. Uh, now Tim had a question. Um, so uh, Tim has some suckers on a few of the live oaks and uh, they were not removed during the colder weather. He hates to leave them there. Uh, and so uh, is it too late to trim? And I, I suspect from the way the questions ask that oak wilt is one of the concerns. Uh, first of all, oak wilt has occurred here in the Bryan College Station area in Brazos County, but it's not common. We don't have a lot of what we call oak wilt centers. So the degree to which the oak wilt pruning rules hold here it's a little less critical that we worry about that because we don't have it here. If, if we if we lived in west side of Austin, well, yes, that you just figure it's around and you better paint every pruning cut immediately after you make it and you focus your pruning on the coldest month of the year and the hottest month of the year, yes. But I would remove those suckers from the base now. Try to get down as close to where they attach as you can because at the base of every sucker are a bunch of buds, and when you cut one off, then here comes a bunch more. You've seen crepe myrtles that look like that. Uh, so go ahead and take them out. Uh, not all oaks do that, uh, by the way. I know you've got the tree you've got, uh, but when you're planting an oak tree, uh, oaks that are from seed sources along, like our Gulf Coast live oaks, the kind you would see in Missouri, Missouri, uh, Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama across the Gulf Coast, uh, those tend to not be mott forming. They tend to be single trunk trees. If you go into the hill country, drive through the hill country and look out in the pastures, you see clumps of live oak out in the pastures because they do form a mott, which is a group of trees. And so the, the thing of suckering, root suckering coming up and, uh, and whatnot is more common with oaks that are genetically more like the hill country oaks than the ones along uh, the deep south. So, uh, but I would remove those suckers as best you can. If they're all coming up really near the base of the tree, you can put a real thick, black, heavy landscape fabric over it. Very dense, not some cheap stuff that you can poke your finger through, uh, but very dense fabric. And then cover it with something that has some weight. Uh, some people use kind of a rock mulch or gravel or whatever, and just basically kind of hold it down that way. Uh, that's going to a little extra extremes, but Tim, I think that's probably uh, 
the best that I, I can give you as far as advice uh, right now. I had a question uh, from Glenn. Uh, Glenn had some eastern red cedars in the subdivision that had been dying, and they start turning brown at the top, and everyone is different. You know, one may be in a field, one may be among a bunch of oaks. They can be one just uh, out of a whole group of trees, one just dies. And this has been happening, and it's, it, I can just tell you it's been happening a lot this past year. The, the summer drought we had, now some people uh, have hypothesized that not just the drought, but uh, the sudden cold that we had a December ago, not this past December, but before, that hit our crepe myrtle so hard, and the freeze of 21 that, that was so severe that it was just a common and then another drought or two in between. Th that, that has just taken its toll, and last summer it just caught up. And uh, we have seen the death of cedars, and it's not some disease that landed on that cedar, that one cedar or a group of cedars. It is something that is physiological and uh, decline based on the climate issues that we've had to deal with, specifically the drought. Cedars, and this is important to remember, cedars, junipers, um, pine trees, uh, these, all these plants, they grow new branches from the base of a living needle, even the scale-like leaves on a cedar. And so if you were to remove every living needle, the branch that that little needle is on, and turn that cedar plant into a hat rack, it could not re-sprout. Now you do that to any other tree, and everywhere you make a cut, you get two or three branches that sprout out from the base of that cut. Uh, cedars can't do that. So anything that kills the needles, it could be bagworms, those little things that hang in the tree like Christmas ornaments shaped like a torpedo. Uh, bagworms, if you take all the needles out, you've got a dead side of the tree that will never regreen again. So when you see a cedar that's turned brown, if it truly is turned brown, uh, it's gone. It's not coming back. And so you just would have to go ahead and remove it. Uh, completely. Uh, now, so what do you do? Well, retroactively, not much. Uh, but going forward, when we do have a severe drought time, an occasional, not a weekly watering, not even ever two weeks of watering, but an occasional good deep soaking can help rescue those trees in the heat of summer, in the heat of summer. So it, if you want to do it every two weeks, that's fine. But just be careful because trees like the cedars and the post oaks, people tend to overwater them, and then we have that additional problem uh, caused by that. Well, we're going to stop there uh, with, with uh, questions today. Uh, we've run out of show time. I appreciate you listening. Uh, tell your friends we're back on live again, and we hope you will rejoin us again on Garden Success. Again, I'm here every Thursday from 12 noon to 1 p.m. And you can email me in the meantime at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.